We've been working through Matthew 21. Actually, uh, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. And it's Passion Week. It's the week where Jesus actually rode the donkey down uh, from the Mount of Olives and allowed Himself to be proclaimed as the Messiah. The people there were thinking He was a Messiah that was going to kick Rome out. But He came not to destroy Rome. He came to destroy religion. He came to turn the tables over in the temple. They didn't get that. And if you remember last week, um, and even the, the week before, we saw that He came to bring peace between God and man. Not necessarily peace for us with a, a persecutor. Obviously, these Indian believers who were beaten up uh, last week, they, they didn't experience peace there at the moment except the peace in their own hearts of knowing that this was not the end of their life no matter what happened here. Even the beatings, there's something far greater, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that outweighs whatever we deal with here on the other side. And Jesus came on that Monday, the 10 Nissan Monday in March 33, exactly 173,880 days, the exact time prophesied in Daniel 9. On that day, He rode down on the donkey as prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. We've covered that. He fulfilled that prophecy. And He came down, and when He came down to the temple that day, the people crowd was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They were putting down palm branches. They wanted freedom, but not freedom from sin. They wanted freedom from Rome. And Jesus turned away from the temple went back to Bethany came back the next day on the way in on a Tuesday, and he sees a fig tree and he curses the fig tree. He then goes to the temple, turns over the tables in the temple. Thousands of people in there, hundreds of priests, the whole Sanhedrin in there. Nobody challenges him. Nobody questions him that day. He cleanses the temple. And that day, I believe Jesus revealed His authority in a way, in the same way He revealed His glory to the disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. In the temple that day, He he revealed His authority. But that day in the temple, those religious leaders, nobody challenged Him. He, He leaves the temple that day, comes back on Wednesday, the tree is wilted, And the disciples go, hey, that tree is wilted that he cursed yesterday. Peter goes, look, Master, look. And he says, yeah, that's right. If you have faith, you can say to the mountain move. And remember, we went back to Zechariah 4 where Zerubbabel was told by Zechariah, hey, it's not by might, not by your power, but what? By the Spirit of the Lord. You can make this mountain flat. And that's where Jesus was taking them when he said that to the disciples. But then the religious leaders go, hey, Who gave you this authority? Whose authority are you operating under is what they're saying. And Jesus said, I'm going to answer that by asking you this question. And he he asked him about John the Baptist. What authority did John the Baptist operate? Did he operate under heaven or man's authority? And they start talking to one another and say, well, if we say heaven, then we have to admit that we did not give in to that. And we were wrong. But if we say for man, the people see that John was a prophet. They believe he was a prophet. So Jesus put them in a box. And what they did is they didn't acknowledge their sin. 
Instead, they said, we don't know, like a kid caught in the middle of doing something bad who says, I don't know, because they don't want to tell you what you caught them doing. It's the same thing. And Jesus says, if you're silent to me, I'll be silent to you. They didn't acknowledge his absolute authority. And we saw uh, last week, we talked about what that means. The absolute authority of God in our life. See, we give God... We, I think there's not a person sitting in here who would not acknowledge that God is the authority in the universe. But yet, we don't really allow Him to be the authority in our life on a regular basis. And we're just as guilty as the Pharisees of rejecting His authority. Even though it's partial, it's not full. If you partially rebel against Him, it's just like fully rebelling against Him. And the hope is, is because Christ died on that cross for us, that if we confess our sin, according to 1 John 1, 9, He will forgive our sin. So when He points it out to us, the problem is when it was pointed out to the Pharisees, they didn't repent. They didn't turn. And so what Jesus does is He tells them three stories. And we went into the first one last week about two sons. And we saw Him really giving them another chance to repent. And the first son said, the father said, go do this. His first son said, I'm not going to do it. But he ends up doing it. Second son says, I will, but doesn't. And Jesus said, which son was righteous? Which one was right? And they said, the first. And he says, you know what? The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get in, and you're not getting in. He said before you, but it wasn't like they were going to get in and before him. It was like they're not getting in. He says... John came preaching the way of righteousness. That's the Word of God. And you didn't repent. They heard that and repent. And even when you saw the changed lives of these people, you didn't repent. Even when you see a Levi who was a tax collector, now he's following a guy who is quoting the Old Testament, who is saying he fulfilled all the prophecies of Messiah. The guy who all he cared about was money his whole life. Zacchaeus, up in a tree to see this guy. And even with all these things, the healing of the blind, the raising of the dead, even all those things, you see all that. You see prostitutes walking away from a life of prostitution. And even though you see those things, you still don't acknowledge that I'm Messiah. What's wrong with that picture? Well, Jesus tells him two more parables. And I was going to try to get through both of them, but it just ain't going to happen in the time we got because there's just too much. And as we look at these parables today, I want you to think the the one. We're going to look at the parable today of the vineyard. But in both the vineyard and then the one that follows in chapter 22, the wedding feast, I saw something this week as I was studying that I've never really grasped. Never even seen it before. Every time I've read this parable, it comes across to me as a parable of rejection until this week. And as we've been working through and and seeing how God continually pursues people, it became apparent to me that the primary thrust of what He's saying in the parable of the vineyard is not about the workers who reject Him. It's about the God who pursues them. And I never saw that. I was always about rejection, and it is about rejection, but I want you to notice today the God who pursues. In fact, two principles out of this passage, this first parable, the first story, is God reveals in this, one, a king's love that is relentless. 
Remember, Matthew is writing to present the king. This is the Messiah king, the one who was going to come and, and establish the kingdom. And in it, we see a king's love that is relentless. You know what that means? That means he doesn't stop. He keeps on pursuing and pursuing. I know some of you guys that sometimes you're not here. I talked to a guy today who couldn't be here. And, and I asked him, I said, you know, I haven't seen you in about four or five weeks. And he said, I know, man, I just get busy. I said, let me ask you this question. I said, do you have anybody in your life, anybody other than the guys at SWAT, sticking their finger in your chest saying, hey, how are you doing with the Lord? Are you in the Word? Are you spending time praying? How's your walk? Is anybody doing that? And he goes, no, not really. Not really. And, and, you know, at the end, he thanked me for asking that. But guys, we all should be doing that with each other and with other people. There are guys, I'm telling you, what happens is if you saw the movie Gladiator, in that movie, Maximus goes into the, uh, to the arena with all the guys and he says, we, we are stronger together. And then they make a, a circle of shields. You remember that? And there's a circle of shields and all the spears, the arrows that come in, does it, they don't hit anybody when they're in that circle, but there's guys outside there alone that get hit. And that's a great picture for us. The reason that we come together like this is to encourage each other and to say, hey, I care, and I want you to know I'm praying for you. And I want you to know that when I look into your eyes, I want to ask you how you're doing. Because I care. And, and God cares so much that He pursues us even when we reject. And that's what we see in this story today. A king whose love is relentless. And then the second thing is a king's love that is rejected. Have you ever, have you ever thrown your love out to somebody and had it rejected? Do, 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 do you understand what that feels like? Imagine allowing your son or your daughter to die for somebody. And to have them spurn that and just say, I don't care. That, that, I mean, that, that would make anybody angry. And this story is about a God who relentlessly pursues and then the very people that He does so much for, He keeps trying to show how much He loves them. They say, we don't care. They not only say, we don't care, they kill the people that are coming trying to communicate His love to them. Now, that's pretty strong. But don't forget the main thrust of what this is talking about is that Father's love. And I want us to look at that. So let's read it. We're going to read this. We're only going to read the first parable. We're going to come back next week and hit the second one. But I want us to look in, in uh, chapter 21 of Matthew. And we're going to read the parable of the tenants. Starting in verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it. And he built a tower. And he leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. Now when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and they beat one. They killed another. They stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than at first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, 
They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Let that sink in for a minute. It's a guy who has given so much. So much. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. A king's love that is relentless. When you read this story, I mean, Jesus tells three stories in response to the question, who gave you this authority? And remember, back in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you shall teach these commandments to your children when you rise up, when you lay down, when you go about in the streets, you shall wear them as frontlets on your eyes. You should have them on your wrist. And when you come into this land that you did not prepare, you get wells that you did not dig, you have houses that you did not build, remember, who gave you those things? Lest you forget, you become prideful. And what had happened with the Pharisees is they were very prideful, very selfish people. You see, God back in Genesis 12, we said this last week, gave the Jewish people a commission through Abraham that says, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And their purpose was, we saw last week, to produce fruit. That fruit was to share the gospel with people, the good news of God wanting a relationship with people that would go beyond the Jewish people, but they never saw that. They were so consumed with themselves and so consumed with getting stuff from themselves. Oh, there was a remnant that saw it, but only a remnant. As a whole, the Jewish people were more concerned with just their stuff. A lot like Christians in the church in America today. People in general, but the Christians in the church today are consumer-driven, not um, driven to be people who are sharing with other people. The reason people come to a Bible study is because of what I get, not what I give. Do you realize everybody in this room has something to, contrib- to contribute to other people here? I tell guys all the time, don't come just because you get something. Come to interact with people in the Bible study. There's a lot of gray hair in this room. You know what that means? That's wisdom according to the Bible. 
Frank, you got a lot of wisdom, brother. <laughs> Not a lot of hair. Though. It's actually falling out. <laughs> I cherish, I cherish the wisdom that I get from my older brothers in this room. There was a time where I didn't. The Israelites and the Pharisees, the leaders, they didn't care about people. They just wanted to take greedy money from people. They wanted to take power from people. They didn't care about the wisdom of God. Most people go to church today to fulfill some kind of religious obligation to network for their business, whatever it is. But it is not to meet with God. Time after time, I get to meet with people from all over this country, and you would be stunned at the percentage of leaders who tell me that less than 5% of the men in their church are involved in any kind of discipleship or evangelism. 5%. Not 10, not 20, less than 5%. Frank, if you had a company and you had a thousand people in that company and 50 of them, less than 50, really worked doing what the company was supposed to be doing, how long would that company last? Right. You see what I'm saying? But see, in the church, you can go along because people here, uh, you know, somebody told me a long time ago, a church can be dead for 50 to 100 years. A business won't last like that. A business dies pretty quick. Why? Because you got to be producing stuff. But a church, out of tradition, people come, they go to church just because their family went there. And they'll support it just because their family went there because it's the right thing to do. It's a religious thing to do. And even in spite of that, God still pursues. He still raises up people. He still brings messengers in. He still says, I love you and I want you to grasp my love. And that's what he tells in this story. I want you to notice the king's love. In the east... The, the way they tell a parable or a story, they're usually, they tell stories to get a point across to somebody they're trying to influence. And usually the listener's trying to figure out who they are in the story. So let's identify the people in this story. Um, the first person it talks about is the master of a house. Who's that? God. All right, there's no question that that's God. He's the king, he's the master. Every time there's a king or a master or a landowner, that's God, right? The master of a house who planted a vineyard. You know who the vineyard is? It's Israel. The vineyard's Israel. So he planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it. First thing you see, you know what a fence is for? Protection. He's saying, I put a fence. Remember last week we, we read where he says he's going to break his staff? He's going to take away his protection over them. He says, I put a hedge of protection around you, a fence. I dug a wine press. They didn't do it. He did it. He built a tower. You know what a tower's for? It's for security, storage, shelter. Look at the care and the investment he's making in this people is what he's saying. And then I went to another country and when the season for fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the tenant to get his fruit. 
Remember back in Deuteronomy? I'm sending you to a land to go and you'll have wells that you did not build and dig. You'll have houses you did not build. You'll have fruit that you did not cultivate. It's his fruit. It's not their fruit. They leased it. He, he gave it as a stewardship. And before we jump on the bandwagon to beat them up too bad, do you realize your job, your life, your home, your bank account, everything associated with you is something He gave you for His glory, for His kingdom. You are just as much a steward as these vine dressers and these workers in the field, these tenants. It is a stewardship. And I did not grasp this early on in my Christian life. I, to be honest with you, I didn't grasp it early on even in ministry, serving God. But when we moved into that house on the river, we lived in a house on the river that was two acres on the St. John's River. It was a million and a half dollar house. We didn't pay one dime of rent for three and a half years. We lived there rent free. God put us there for a reason. And my wife and three kids and our two dogs lived in that house. Now who lets a family with dogs live in a million dollar house they're trying to sell? First of all, that makes no sense. But one of the things that we, when we moved in there, we knew that at any time we could move out. And my wife and I, we looked at each other one night and we just said, you know, we just have to hold on to it like this because it's not our house. But the truth is, it was never our house. Even the houses where our name was on the mortgage, it was all God's. But we tend to think ownership. We tend to think this is mine. And that's what they thought. They had lived there. They saw the fruit. They worked the ground. And they began to be greedy. And what happens is that culture back, if you go look in some of the Mishnah and some of the other teachings of Judaism, that if you lived on a property for three and a half years and they, they did not uh, come and collect rent from you or get money from the products, then you could exercise squatter's rights and claim that as your own. So even if the owner just came and got a little bit, of, of pay. It would maintain their rights. And these people in the story, the listeners would have known that. They would have been thinking about it. And remember, they're still trying to figure out who they are in the story. And so it says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants. And what did they do? They took his servants. The first one says they beat him. They beat him. Now, stop right there. If you have a employee and you send them to go collect the debt and the guy beats the person up after you've given them a big loan what are you going to do you're going to get somebody to go take care of what's right because that's not right you lent these people money you gave them opportunity and they repay you by when you try to ask for something in return. Have you have you ever been cheated like that? Have you ever been treated like that? Somebody owed you something they didn't pay? And these people didn't not only not pay, they beat up the person that he sent. And so, you know, a friend of mine said, he's a pastor, he said, you know, if we would have written the Old Testament to be about two pages long, because we wouldn't put up with near the stuff that God put up with. We'd have just <laughs> wiped everybody out if we were God. It's true. The Old Testament is that thick. If we had written it, it had been like two pages. Cain kills Abel. Okay, mankind's done. You know? 
We ain't putting up with that. <laughs> Don't miss this. They beat up his servant, so he sends more servants. And what do they do? They not only beat these, they kill them. When it says they killed another, it, it indicates a quick death, like a sword or something quick. There's a progression here. And if you look over in Mark, the Mark account, it's, it tells a similar story. I think the way Mark tells it, there's a progression because he moves from killing quickly to stoning. Stoning was not a quick death. It was a painful, slow death. Mm. A very humiliating death. And then it says, even after that, it says again, he sent other servants more than at first. And they did the same to them. Now, who are these servants in the story? They're the prophets. They're the people that speak for God. They're Isaiah, who tradition says was sown in half. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Micah, all martyred. Now we read Isaiah, we read Jeremiah, we read these great prophets, and we go, wow, that's so good. The people that were there, they didn't, they didn't like that at all, what they were saying. They killed them. They killed them. Then, then, he goes, now, now keep in mind, what you're seeing is his relentless love. Every time somebody mistreats him, he sends somebody else. Somebody mis kills him, sends somebody else. Somebody stones them, he sends more to try to get the message across. This relentless love of the king for his people. And then, he sends His Son. He sends His Son. And His Son was Him, really, right? right. Now, Mark 12, 6 says it was His only Son. And He says, maybe, maybe if, if I send My Son, it, it says they will treat Him with respect. It's really for a Middle Easterner, when they hear this, it means that when the owner himself comes and he's saying they will treat him respect, it really maybe it will bring them to shame for what they've done. And I'll give you a picture of this. King Hussein ben Tahel is a king of Jordan. One night in the early 1980s, uh, he was informed by a security police that 75 officers in the military were planning a, a military coup. An overthrow against him and uh, the security officers who told him about it said listen we can get forces we can get we know where they're at we can surround the building we can arrest them and we can squelch this right now and after uh, a minute the king just paused and he he said uh, bring me a small helicopter so they brought him a small helicopter and the king climbed in with the pilot and they were the only, he's told his security guys, no, you stay here. And he went with his pilot. He got the pilot to land on the building where these men were at. He said to the pilot, gets out of the plane, says, listen, if you hear gunshots, fly away. He got out of the helicopter. He walks down two flights of stairs, walks into a room probably like this. And imagine their surprise when King Hussein walks in. He walks in and he says, uh, gentlemen, it's come to my attention that you're planning a, uh, 
overthrow of the government, a military coup, and you want to take over the country and install a military dictator. He goes, if you do this, the army's going to break apart. There's thousands of people that are going to die. You're going to push the country into a civil war. He says, there's no need for it. Here I am. Kill me now. There's no need for all that bloodshed. That way, only one man will die. Now that takes some kahunas to do something like that. <laughs> After a moment of stunned silence, the rebels, all, all these military officers who were planning to kill that guy, rushed to him. They started kissing his hands and his feet. And they pledged loyalty to him for the rest of their life. And they lived that out. King Hussein, instead of crushing it, he had such love for his country that he acted nobly and with vulnerability. And he went in there, and what he did, by doing what true he did, story? he, he, huh? Is that a true story? Absolutely, it's true. It's, it's absolutely true. It was in the 1980s. King Hussein fanned into flame the honor that was deep inside these men that had been dying. And God, I believe the same thing King Hussein did in sending his son says, maybe if I send my son, these men will see the love that I have, the, the trust that I have to say, you can be different. You don't have to reject. And instead, what do they do? They see the son. They recognize the son. They know who he is. It's not like they didn't know who he was. He made claims. He said, I'm the one. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am Messiah. By coming down the mountain that day on the donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9, fulfilling Daniel chapter 9, he's saying, I'm Messiah. These children crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the leaders are going, don't you hear what they're saying? He said, of course I hear what they're saying. And he didn't rebuke them. He affirmed them. They knew who he was. This is the heir, heir. Come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And they took Jesus outside the city gates on that Friday and they crucified him. They rejected him. Why did they reject him? It says because they wanted his inheritance. They were selfish, prideful men who did not appreciate what God had given. And instead, they, they were selfish and prideful and they said, we're going to kill him. The son of God. We're going to kill Messiah. Because <laughs> we don't think he's Messiah. Because if he would have really been Messiah, he would kick Rome out. You see, he came in and instead of kicking Rome out, he's talking about being crucified. Instead of overthrowing Rome, he's turning over tables in the temple. That's not Messiah. Not the one they were looking for. I wasn't looking for the Jesus that says you're going to have to suffer. But I'm following him now. But there's a lot of people that follow the Jesus, like I said last week, the Jews are defined. They make Jesus what they want. They feel a religious duty in their life. And they're good. And they're not producing fruit. They're not caring for the vineyard. All they care about is squeezing out what they get out of it. They're selfish, they're prideful, just like these Pharisees. 
And you know what happens? What's the result of rejection? Well, we see that in verse 41. They said, because Jesus says, now, what will the owner do when he sees this? Now, remember, the Pharisees are still listening. They, they know at this point who they are in the story, I think. What will the owner do when he comes? And they said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. He will let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. They're trying to act sanctimonious because of all the people that are probably listening to what he's saying. But you know what? They give the right answer. He's going to give out the vineyard to other tenants. That's replacement. That's what happens when you reject. God keeps giving you opportunity, opportunity, and you know what? He says, you know what? If, if Chuck won't do it, I'll bring David. If David won't do it, I'll bring Brent. If Brent won't do it, I'll bring Amos. You see, he's going to do his will. And if you won't do it, if you won't follow, he's going to use somebody else. So he tells the leaders, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to use Peter, James, and John. Fishermen from Bethsaida, some small, insignificant fishing village. You guys have had all the theology. You've gone through all the training. You've had some of the best minds in Jerusalem training you, and you refuse to acknowledge the Messiah. So I'm going to use other people, and that's what he's done. He replaced them. The second thing we see, oh, is he doesn't only replace them, he blinds them. He blinds them. They're blinded. You remember we talked about that when we went through the book of John, judicial blindness? Judicial blindness from God is this. When you reject him so much, he gets to the point where he says, okay, now I reject you. You, you, you move from where you choose not to believe to where you can't believe. It's called judicial blindness. Where, remember Isaiah? They had ears, but they couldn't hear. Eyes, but they couldn't see. Oh, they could hear audibly, but they couldn't hear spiritually. They could see the written words, but they couldn't see spiritually underneath what those words meant. You've got a lot of people that sit in churches every Sunday that can read the English language of the Bible and have no clue about the spiritual underpinnings of what they read. They're blind. They can't see. And, and this blindness comes because they reject Messiah. They still are trying to get their way in. They, they, yeah, they know Jesus died on the cross. You think these men didn't know Jesus died on the cross? They were there when it happened. They saw it. They still didn't repent. But when Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, He says, have you never read in the Scriptures... Do you realize what that... That would be like, Bud, Bud how many years have you been uh, in the financial industry studying the stock market? 60? 60 years. That'd be like me saying to Bud, Bud, have you never seen Wall Street? The man's been studying it for 60 years. They've spent their life with the Scriptures. And he says, have you never read? Because they didn't understand spiritually. And he quotes Psalm 118 to him. Now, this is, and this is significant. You know why? Because Psalm 118 was what they said a couple of weeks ago on Monday. And, and, and it was a couple of weeks ago for us, but it was two days earlier for them where Jesus is riding down the donkey on the donkey and they go, Hosanna, Hosanna. Flip over to Psalm 118 real quick. Psalm 118. And it's, it's talking about Messiah. 
If you go Psalm 118 and you look at verse 22, Jesus quotes this in Matthew 21. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. What is save us? Remember, we talked about that. Hosanna. 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 See, Jesus is quoting what they were... He's quoting the very psalm that they were screaming out just a couple of days earlier. And He's quoting, and what does it say? This is the day the Lord has made. This is messianic. He's making a claim here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Listen, when you built back then, you had a cornerstone that the whole building was formed out of. Anybody in building, back then you would, you would take that cornerstone and that's what set the, the direction of the building. It set the way the building would flow. It was the centerpiece of the building normally. In fact, in the Herodian temple, they had one cornerstone that was 15 meters long. That's 45 feet long. Listen, one of the Herodian stones just this long weighs two tons. So imagine 15 meters. And Jesus said the very cornerstone that you rejected as a builder, they rejected. They said, no, Messiah is going to overthrow Rome, not going to be some guy that's going to die on the cross. <coughs> and God says, that's going to be the cornerstone of faith. The, the, the very thing that they rejected, Him dying on the cross is going to be the cornerstone of our faith. Do you realize? Listen, think about this for a second. If you brought a Jewish person from that time period into our culture today, and they're walking around, and they see people wearing a gold cross on their neck, what are they going to think? They're going to be like, think they're either one, they're Roman, because the Romans were the only one that liked the cross for people that were their enemies. But they're going to go, why, why, why are you wearing a cross? Oh, we love God. Really? Why are you wearing a cross? You see, that's so foreign to us. When we see a cross, it symbolizes hope. It symbolizes something beautiful. But that's because God made it beautiful. He took the thing that builders rejected and He made it the cornerstone. See, if, if Jesus would have been alive today, you know what we'd be wearing? Syringes around our neck. Because that's what we use for lethal injection. Back in the 1930s, old Sparky. Maybe even 40s, 50s. I don't know when the last time they cranked Sparky up. But the old electric chair. Can you imagine just for a second walking around with a gold electric chair around your neck? That's insane. I, you want to do, a, a, do something in church next time substitute electric chair for the cross and see what people do around you oh I'll cling to the old electric chair you see how that sounds the point is is we wouldn't do that because it's offensive it was just as offensive to them and they rejected it and Jesus said the very thing you reject quoting from Psalm the very thing you reject is going to be the cornerstone 
And he wasn't the only one. Peter said it. Over in Acts chapter 4, when Peter, remember Peter heals the guy? And they're going, why do you keep doing these things? You see, they thought when they killed Jesus, it was going to be dealt with. And the apostles were healing people. In Acts chapter 4, he had healed this guy. And listen in Acts 4.10 what he says to the leaders. It says, the scribes and the elders gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and they were all of the high priestly family, and they had set them in the midst, they had inquired, by what power or name do you do this? Does that sound familiar to you guys? It's the same thing they asked Jesus. And listen to what Peter says down in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there's, no, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He's the cornerstone. They were blinded. They did not see. He says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Quoting, I think, from Isaiah 8 there. Now, says the chief priest and the Pharisees heard this parable. His parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Really? You think? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. <clears throat> I told you, a lot of times, Jesus alludes to the Old Testament. These leaders would have known those scriptures that he alludes to. So let me flip you back real quick to Isaiah 5. And I want to read to you. Remember, Isaiah was a prophet that was killed. He was a messenger of God. And in Isaiah chapter 5, I want you just to listen. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Who's the vineyard? Israel. Israel. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Yes. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That's really no grapes. The grapes aren't good. He wanted it to yield good grapes, but it yielded not good grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? He's saying, this is God speaking, saying, I've invested, I've brought people, I've done things. I couldn't do anything else. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it not why did it yield wild grapes? In other words, when I've invested all this stuff, why does it keep producing bad fruit? 
And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And he goes on to say in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant, or his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Jesus was taking them to that passage. He was speaking directly to them. And every one of them would have known that. So what does that have to do with me and you? I think two things as we walk out of this room today, and, that, and I didn't get through. I was going to try to get both parables because they both deal with rejection and God's love. But this one is just so had so much. And really the questions are really haunting questions that we have to deal with. One, am I rejecting God's messengers in my life? When God brings people into my life that are trying to speak truth, His truth, into my life, am I rejecting them? People do it all the time. I want God to send His messengers into my life. And then the second question, which is even a greater question that we have to wrestle with, am I rejecting His love in my life? Am I rejecting His love? And it may not look like you going, no, no, I don't want your love, God. No, that's not what it looks like. And we're going to see as we look at the parable next week. That's why I really wanted to teach them together today. But next week, the way they rejected His love is they were just too busy. Got to go to my farm. Got to go to my business. Got to go to this. Got to go to that. You can make excuses all day long for the reasons that you don't want to be around God's people and you don't want to be around God. But the bottom line is, you make yourself isolated out there, you're just a target for the enemy. And trust me, if you're his kid, he will bring discipline in your life to let you know that you do not function alone in his kingdom. You function around a group of believers in community, around the word with a passion to be like our teacher, Jesus. Let's pray.